Welcome to the Functional Pelvic Health Podcast, where we bridge the gap between orthopedics, pelvic floor PT, and exercise by bringing you useful information so you can run, jump, laugh, cough, sneeze, and lift heavy, all without peeing on yourself or feeling pressure down there. Remember, this podcast is for information only and does not provide medical advice. This is Dr. Nora Witten here, and I am with Pam Schoenfeld. Pam is a registered dietitian with over 12 years of experience in helping people regain optimal health. Her office, which is Women and Family Nutrition, is located in downtown Raleigh. And for the past five years, she has been specializing in, health, in reproductive health using ancestral nutrition principles and focusing especially on helping women who want to get pregnant. So welcome, Pam. We are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Oh, Nora. Hi. Thanks for, I'm really excited to be on here too. Um, just love the work that you do. As you know, I'm a client of your office and um, I just think we're both on the same page when it comes to getting people into feeling their best, right? Yeah, definitely. Well, and for everyone listening, I met Pam, um, I guess it was like 2018 now. 2018, 2019. Um, and I worked with her because I was wanting to get pregnant. I wasn't having regular periods. I wasn't ovulating. I'd, you know, been to the doctor and just felt like they, they kind of did everything they could. Um, but their solution was just putting me back on birth control to help me get a period. And I didn't really feel like that was what I needed. So, um, I searched really hard to find someone, um, who did work in, you know, who was a dietitian and worked with women's health. And so I found Pam and, um, working with you was very, very eye-opening and very helpful. Um, and I think just a lot of information that people don't get um, that we need. So yeah, that's what I see every day in my office. It's it's usually not a lot of big changes. There's just a few changes that most women benefit from, or most patients. I see mostly women, but I do see family members as well and their partners as also. But but it's, it's just a few key things that can make all the difference. And by the way, your son is adorable. Thank you. Lucas, she, yeah, that was really, it's really nice to see that. That's why I do what I do. Cause I want to see women, you know, have their families and feel, you know, really, you know, that they're doing the best they can. Cause nobody's going to do perfect. We don't expect perfection in anything that we do, but just getting close to what our bodies need really does make a difference in how yeah. our bodies perform and yeah. our, our cycles as well. Definitely. So, um, first I'd love for you to just tell me a little bit more about how you got interested in women's health. Yeah. Well, I actually didn't become a dietitian until I was 50. So, Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I wouldn't exactly say it was a second career. Well, it was, well, actually it was a first career as a dietitian, but I actually studied um, nutrition as an undergraduate. Mm -hmm. And when I graduated from university of Maryland, in 1981, the options for dietitians were a lot more limited. So most of my classmates who were going on to become dietitians, you know, they all had degrees in nutrition. were going into hospital-based programs. And basically that's pretty much the most common frequent, you know, position they would take. And I was like, I can't work in a hospital as a dietitian. I, I just, the whole image of working in a hospital just wasn't a match for my life, my life goals. So I just opted out of nutrition and went into a biochemistry lab at Columbia university and did some research there for a while. And there's some other jobs I had after that. But what happened is 
in my late 30s, um, I started finding myself just with very little energy. And, and actually, I'd had irregular periods all my life. It was something that I kind of started realizing was possibly PCOS at that time. That's when I first became aware of the condition. And, um, and I started going more plant-based because that was what I was kind of taught in university. And that's the bulk of the information that I was seeing when I went to health food stores, you know, how to eat more vegetable plants and different types of plant proteins. And yet I wasn't feeling better. And I remember my husband asking me one afternoon, and he did this a lot, you know, what do you want to do this afternoon? It was a Saturday and the kids, we'd already done the soccer or whatever with the kids. And, and I said, you know what? I just want to take a nap. <laughs> and it was sad because that's, I was tired all the time and I still had irregular periods, but I, I said, you know, I just think if I just had more phytoestrogens, that would help, you know, it must be that. So I did a lot of research on soy thinking that would be a solution because, you know, I'm still kind of thinking going vegetarian more and more. And I came across a website, the Weston A. Price Foundation website that had some articles on why soy was bad for you. You know, in those days, Yahoo was whatever search engine I used, I think it was Yahoo, but not that many results popped up. So this one came up to the top and I said, come on, what is this? And then I started reading it. I'm going, oh my goodness, this makes perfect sense. Because what it was, it was all about the, the diets that people had eaten before we modernized or we so-called modernized our diets. Mm -hmm. And before the USDA gotten involved and before we started thinking that we should all avoid animal foods because of heart disease and cholesterol issues. And I started reading it going, wow, that's really interesting. And it, it resonated with me and I just couldn't stop. And I started... So I basically switched my entire diet from probably 90% plant-based, maybe eggs and cheese here and there. In fact, I was even going to vegetarian cheese, like vegan cheese, and started including, I mean, I went, I went 180 degrees, um, liver, cod liver oil, pastured eggs, even raw milk at that time, lots of cheese, and of course, the usual fruits and vegetables. I'd always gardened and everything. And all of a sudden, and this happened the quickest was I started to get my period like 28 days. Wow. 28 days. And now I don't know if I was ovulated. I must assume I was fortunately. And well, I shouldn't say that because I love all my children. I don't know if I could have handled another one, <laughs> but I didn't get pregnant. You know, I was practicing yeah. pretty, you know, good contraception practices, but I wasn't on the birth control or anything mm -hmm. like that. It was 28 days. And I'm like, my entire life, I never had a period of 28 days. Wow. So I said, and I started feeling better and I started wanting to do more things. And I thought, wow, this is like amazing. So I spent the next five years changing my diet and my family's diet, which is a little bit of a process when you have eight and 10 and 12 year old, especially yeah. with my son, who was a little resistant to some of the things I wanted him to eat and spent a little time with some regrets thinking, boy, I wish I'd known this when I was young, you know, I was pregnant and when the kids were small and when I was breastfeeding, I'm not going to get into my personal you know, history with my kids, but I do think my son could have been a little bit healthier than he was. And I, I was a little bit sort of angry in the sense that, you know, that I was being steered in the wrong direction and mm -hmm. it, I missed out on an opportunity to take care of my family as I would have liked to. And I remember going to a conference. I don't know if you find the story interesting, but it's, 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 it's really, it really did shake my world up. I went to a conference from the Western Price Foundation and it was about feeding young children and babies. And most of the women in the, in the audience were, you know, toting babies or had small children or said they had small children. I got to meet a few of them and mine were already mostly teenagers, young teenagers. And I, 
I started crying because I'm, you know, everybody was saying, oh yeah, we feed our kid this and it's so wonderful. And I just felt, wow, I just totally screwed up. You know, I just missed mm -hmm. it. And I walked out of the, the, the session and I was in tears. And then wow. a guy that um, was on the board of the directors and I knew him, he's a really nice guy. came up to me, he goes, what's the matter, Pam? And I said, oh, I just messed up so much. He goes, you know what? You did the best you could. You didn't know any better. Now that you you know better, you're doing better. And that was a philosophy I, I've taken forward through my entire life because when I meet with women, and I'll give you a little story how I became a dietitian after that, mm -hmm. I don't want to create any regrets because there's nothing we can do about not having knowledge in the past. Right. But we do the best we can when we get the knowledge. And some of us can't do as much as others. And, and I that's totally fine. I like to meet women where they are. But when I learned this, I just said, you know, I have to share this with other women because I know how I feel and how I wish someone had told me about this stuff. So that is my that is what I must do. Mm -hmm. So I went back to school, got a master's in nutrition, and at the same time satisfied all the requirements to get into a dietetic internship. And that took about well, it took about three years to satisfy the requirements because I had to take them in succession because there were some courses I had to repeat. Mm -hmm. um, and I got accepted into a very demanding program in the state of New Jersey. And I almost fell over when I got accepted because it wasn't the one I wanted to go to. <laughs> I, had, I, I was working at a rehab center at the time and a lot of the interns had come there and they used to tell me how terrible it was. I, was like, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to get in that one, right? Yeah. <laughs> and in fact, this is a funny story, but I went to interview for the... Um, you know, for the internship and the woman who actually was my advocate, I did, I found out later, she asked me what was my main challenge or what were the things that I struggle with? And I said, I struggled with stress sometimes, just getting too much on my plate and getting stress overload. And I walked out of the interview going, oh, I just blew that, <laughs> you know? but I got in and, and yeah. I'm like, wow, I don't want to be in this difficult program, but I did very, very well in it. And, um, I had to I had to swallow a lot of the stuff that I didn't totally agree with, but I learned so much about how to work in the medical system as a mm -hmm. dietitian and what you know laboratory um, how to evaluate labs, um, how to you know chart on the medical record, and just how to communicate with other healthcare professionals. So it was really really amazing, and I took my ancestral nutrition knowledge and meshed it with that conventional training I got. And immediately out of school, I started working for a doctor who met me through a conference, another funny story, but I don't want to get off in too many tangents. <laughs> and um, actually, I, I, I was introduced to her by Mark Hyman, who's a very famous. Uh, mm, yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah, I met him as a long story. But anyway, um, and didn't stay there that long for a variety of reasons. But I then I went and started my own practice because I, I, I can't work in this health system because I don't follow. I don't I don't just follow the party line, if you will. Right. It doesn't mean that it's all wrong, but there's enough of it that's wrong that can change things for, especially in a reproductive um, age woman, because we are supposed to be, we need to be well nourished to have children. Yeah. That's how our bodies, you know, operate best. And in fact, I always tell women and whether they want to get pregnant or not, that yes, we're trying to support your fertility because that's, mm -hmm. and your body isn't going to want to get pregnant if it's not a good time to have a child. Yeah. And it's constantly, I use this term sampling the environment and, and deciding, is this a good time to have a baby, mm -hmm. you know? And so there's a variety of reasons that it might not be, you know, under eating is a common one, but really more common than that is lack of certain vitamins and minerals mm -hmm. and, um, and just being a little bit out of balance with 
the nutrient intake. So yeah. Anyway. So yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I love that you did that at 50. I feel like a lot of people would just be like, oh, it's, you know, it's too late or, you know, going back to school after that long, I'm sure that was really hard to do, uh, you know? Yeah, it was hard because I was used to having a, I had had a few part-time jobs that I did work in different careers. You know what the list, I actually was a video producer in a small video studio once. And that was another story, but, but, um, not being able to do what I wanted when I wanted was because it was six days a week, at least I was, you know, doing mm-hmm. either the internship or doing homework or it was like six and a half. And so that was tough because I still had a couple kids at home, although they were older. And, but my husband was real supportive. And I remember watching football on Sundays, just doing my homework because my son and my husband were just sitting there. And my husband was like, why are you doing your homework in front of football? I said, cause it calms me down, <laughs> but it, it was really good. And, and you know what? you people can rise to the occasion you know that Nora yeah you know I mean I'm really lucky right now I don't I I work three days a week so I have a lot of free time but um I I could work more if I wanted to but I find that I'm better if I work less often because it is what I do is is pretty intense with most people I do a combination of you know nutrition education and some tough love and motivational you know interviewing and speaking Mm -hmm. and just getting, um, my goal is to get women be- to believe that, first of all, to believe that things can be better for themselves. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times they've been to different healthcare practitioners, especially doctors who've given them a diagnosis of PCOS or, you know, subfertility or, you know, you need IVF or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, you know, let's not be your diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you, there's a nutrition, I usually identify something that I mm-hmm. think is a nutritional problem. And I think we, we can correct this and we can, we can maybe see results that, that are going to surprise you and, and you're, you know, the doctors don't ever believe anything makes a difference most of the time, but, but that's because of my personal story because, yeah. and I keep seeing it over and over again. And it's like, well, this totally makes sense, you know, mm-hmm. but it's not in the literature. It's not in protocols that, you know, we're supposed to follow as dietitians. You, I kind of have to create it, but it yeah. really is just investigative or like being a dietitian detective and just trying to figure out what the the nutrients that they may be the women may be short in, what other problems they might have that are related to the food they're eating, or maybe the stress or exercise. So the combination thereof. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So as far as um, like trying to get pregnant and fertility kind of what are like the specific foods or nutrients that, um, women really need? Well, I hate to say this, but the top one is liver, <laughs> which nobody eats. Yeah. So I didn't, I didn't I, eat that. I, I think you told do, me too, but I did. I know I got to <laughs> do a work around on that. And there's a variety of ways that we can do that, but that's mostly because not everyone needs this form of vitamin A, but there's a good percentage, probably a third of women in the population and probably 75% of the women I see need to get more vitamin A. And they're not getting it in their diets because the animal form of vitamin A is not in very many foods. There's mm-hmm. small amounts in butter and cheese and egg yolks probably more, if they're more, definitely more if they're pastured. I don't think we have data on that though, the difference between just cage, cage and you know, true cage free eggs, but actually was the number one nutrient deficiency I had. I had all the signs of vitamin A deficiency before I changed my diet to, I actually did like liver. I grew up on liver, um, but I stopped eating it when I got into high school because my diet, like all of us, you know, we get older, we just decide we want to eat this and not that. And, and it's not that I didn't like it. I just 
wasn't home for dinner very much and I ate mm -hmm. cookies for lunch at school and I skipped breakfast. I mean, I ate horrible. And it's no wonder I, that I, you know, for some reasons, my yeah. sisters weren't affected by it. But anyway, I, at the age of um, my late 30s, I had all the signs of vitamin A deficiency, which incidentally, the main ones are dry eyes, sensitivity to bright light, and bumps on the back of your arms or legs. And there's a few others too. And yeah. I didn't recognize it at the time. Uh, I remember though, going into a swimming pool, especially after my first child was born. And that's a real tough time to have enough vitamin A. Fortunately, the vitamins in those days had true vitamin A and I'm probably not enough for me though, because I think I need more than the average person. Um, but I remember getting into a swimming pool and literally I couldn't open my eyes. Wow. I mean, I was standing there going, don't, doesn't anybody have trouble like me? I can't open my eyes. It was so bright. And yeah. then I actually saw an optometrist because my eyes were dry. He said, oh, you have dry mm -hmm. eye. And he prescribed restasis. Yeah. And I had the classic hyperkeratosis on the back of my oh, arms. Yeah. And when I, when I started including these other foods, all these things got better. And mm -hmm. then interestingly enough, about, uh, I don't know, about five years ago, maybe a little bit more, I did a 23andMe um, blood test. And then I um, took that data and put it through um, an application that was provided. Uh, it's called, oh gosh, what is it called? I forgot now, but it's by um, a company that sells supplements. And it analyzes certain of your single nucleotide polymorphisms, which are basic you know, differences in your genes that change. Like a lot of people have heard of the MTHFR one. Mm -hmm. and um, oh it's called strategy sorry and it's by seeking health they don't they don't sell it as an add-on to the mm -hmm. 23 and me anymore unfortunately because that that's a great cost-effective way to do it but it analyzes all your bunch of snips for the mthfr which is the folic acid one choline omega-3s but the most important one for me was the vitamin a the conversion of beta carotene to retinol which is this, retinol is the kind our bodies actually use as vitamin A. We do use beta carotenes or carotenoids for antioxidants, but as far as the role of vitamin A in the body, it's mm -hmm. only from retinol. And so we mm -hmm. have to split carot beta carotene into retinol. And there's some enzymes that do this. They're called B. Oh gosh, I wish I could. No, I can't think of what they're called. That's really silly, but it's it's called BCO1 mm -hmm. is the name, the abbreviation. Um, but it stands for splitting the, the beta carotene into Oh, it's beta carotene oxygenases or something. It adds oxygen after mm -hmm. it splits it, right? Or to split it. Anyway, I have like three and a half polymorphisms, meaning three are homozygous is one is heterozygous per poor conversion. Mm. Yeah. Which, so you're a little more like susceptible to that oh, I'm, deficiency I'm just, then. Yeah. And yeah. that's actually a very common thing in women of European descent and, and mm. men too. It's yeah. less common in um, African-American descent, but in in, in European descent, and I'm 100% European, I'm probably more, I don't know if I'm 100%, but I'm like 90%. But so I got the kind of the short end of the stick. And interestingly enough, I'm the only one in my family that wears glasses. And I've seen research showing that vitamin A does also change the, the growth and shape of the eye. So if I was vitamin A deficient or needed more when I was growing up, and I was very close in age to my sister, I'm only 13 months behind her, which means my mother was probably depleted a bit. Mm -hmm. I just kind of, you know, didn't get enough. So yeah. thankfully most of my body is fine. I mean, you know, I, you never know what, what could be right. You always, right. you always think, well, if I, but anyway, 
Uh, maybe I would be smarter. <laughs> I don't know. But I think but, you're pretty um, smart. <laughs> yeah, I'm smart, but I know a lot of people are smarter than me. But that's interesting because you know what? I think I can recognize people who are smart. That's my that's probably my smartness because I started reading so many people's work. Chris Master John, um, Paul Jaminet, both of them are thought leaders in the ancestral health world. And especially Chris, he's just I mean, he's the primo one that people are actually, I think, following the lead on. Not, not, not everything he does, but he's he's like the expert in micronutrients. Anyway, so I took that information and I said, you know what? Even though it's not what I'm supposed to do according to like, you know, whatever standard care is, standard of care, I'm going to do it in a way that's safe, mm-hmm. but that helps women. I'm, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to be a little bit bold. So when women come in with these, you know, different types of issues with um, their reproductive health and PCOS, polycystic ovary syndrome, is probably a quarter to a half of, eh, it depends on the week, but of my caseload. Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes, at least half the time I say to them, you know, what? I really don't think this is PCOS. Mm-hmm. I, you know, you, it, it could be, but I'm not gonna make that assumption. I think there's a nutritional problem going on here that we, once we get fixed, Mm-hmm. you're going to have regular auditory cycles. And sure enough, I'd say 75% of those women do respond that way. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And it's, it's great because women think this is a diagnosis that, you know, defines their trajectory, right? Oh, I don't know mm-hmm. if I'm going to be able to get pregnant. And, and, and that's the thing I, I don't, I mean, I learned it firsthand and it was just like, you know, you, I think that's what happens in your life. You, when you've experienced something that's so life altering firsthand, mm-hmm. you want to run out and tell everybody, right? Because, oh, yeah. because, um, you know, I don't know, that's just me. And I'm like, most obstetricians aren't really interested in this and fertility specialists, they're not interested in it at all, yeah. unfortunately. So yeah. anyway, it's, it's a real privilege to work with the patients I have. I have some amazing patients. And of course you are one of them. Um, but it's just, it's just every, every week, almost every day, I feel like I've just, I've just allowed a woman to actually experience a better life yeah. and her children as well. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I think that it's so important. And, you know, I mean, I feel like, you know, we see similar things to my practice, right. Of like just women who have been dealing with issues for a long time and it's like, they may have been dismissed and, um, yeah, it's really cool when you can teach someone something that, seems kind of simple to you, but it's changes their life in a drastic exactly. way. Exactly. So. Yeah. And, and funny, it's like, it's, it's, it seems simple and, but it, it's not what is thought is not looked at in the, in the conventional medical model because yeah. it is, it doesn't fit in a drug or a certain procedure, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So So going off of that with prenatal vitamins, so this is something too, that you taught me a lot, you know, I brought in what I was taking and, um, when it comes to prenatal vitamins, it seems like there's really specific things that you should look for. And just because something's labeled as prenatal, it may not actually be what you need. So what should people, um, or women be looking for if they're trying to pick a prenatal vitamin? Well, I'm actually glad you said people not because of the transgender issue. That's, you know, one of the reasons, but because their partners should really look at their nutrition as well. So, but speaking specifically of a woman who's looking for a prenatal, 
Um, the most important nutrients is the proper form of vitamin A, which probably 90% of prenatal vitamins do not have or do not have enough of. Mm-hmm. Or in some cases, they're not being taken in a way that woman can absorb the vitamin A properly. Mm-hmm. The zinc is probably a second one, especially if, if a woman's been on more of a, um, a plant-focused diet, and especially if she hasn't been using ancestral principles of food preparation, which you don't have to use, but if you're going to eat a lot of seed-based foods, such as legumes and grains and nuts as your sources of protein, you got to be really careful that you don't become zinc deficient. Mm. And the thing is with zinc, you know, a lot of women can actually nowadays are coming in supplementing with zinc and that's fine, but you can, you know, all these nutrients have to be in balance with each other. So if you're taking zinc, which a lot of women start because of having COVID or whatever, and then they'll say on it, I'm like, well, you know, you really have to be careful because it can, it can reduce your copper absorption, which is a big problem too. Um, Coppers and zinc are both needed for um, important antioxidants in your body. And then there's the women that come in. Most women are taking vitamin D, although not all. I mean, vitamin D is probably the most commonly um, purchased and uh, used supplement that I see and, and prescribed as well by their doctors. And it's always interesting to me because women tell me, oh, I was vitamin D deficient in the past. And then I took a prescription and I said, well, I hate to tell you this, but it doesn't go away just because you treated it once, you know? Yeah. And the same thing with iron deficiencies. A lot of women will tell me, yeah, I took iron for, you know, a few months. And I'm like, well, you need to see how you are now, because if you have a heavy period, and I see women with, that have no periods, although with the gamut of people that are, you know, women that are bleeding a couple of weeks or more a month and hit, losing a lot of blood. It's all about just keeping an eye on these things and not, not just kind of assuming things are okay and checking blood levels and looking at signs and symptoms and looking at the dietary intake and and you know, making sure that they're not out of balance with nutrients. As, so same as zinc and copper, I have a strong relationship, magnesium, calcium do, vitamin A and D do, vitamin K does, selenium and iodine for your thyroid, all of these things. And so the, mo- the main ones I see deficiencies of to restate are vitamin A, zinc, calcium, iron, probably B6, B12, selenium. And then there's a few more less frequently, but I'm, you know, I, I'm looking for everything that tells me, you know, is this woman hundred percent nourished? Because all we have to do is be missing one nutrient mm-hmm. for our bodies to be malnourished. Mm-hmm. And there's about 55 essential nutrients. Yeah. So that's a lot. It's <laughs> a lot. And you can do this at home, by the way, um, you can do this at home. But with that said, I've never had a woman tell me it wasn't worth at least yeah. one or two visits with me. They were very happy that they got yeah. the knowledge. And the other thing is I, what I do is if um, a woman wants to do more work on her own and, and, and look up and read and, and do all the, you know, the background research herself, I'm happy when women do that, because I think that it's, it's good for them to see where the information I'm getting comes from, because it's not what they're going to hear from their doctors necessarily. Right. And um, so I'll give women resources, videos, um, links, books that I recommend, articles, and just say, hey, you know, take a look at this and see if this might resonate with you. And Mm -hmm. now sometimes I'll tell them, look, this is pretty technical, but I want you to understand that 
you know, I don't understand some of the, all the scientific papers. I mean, you know, some of these are so, you know, researchers are working on one vitamin, you know, right. and that's all they do their whole lives, right? But um, I'll be like, you know, let's let's read this, let's read the, you know, especially the discussion, the conclusion, the abstract. And of course, you know, that's not enough if you're really crit critiquing a paper, but I never use a paper in isolation. I always combine mm -hmm. that knowledge with what ancestral health wisdom has mm -hmm. been passed down to us. And that started back in the early 1900s, especially when they, um, especially Dr. Weston Price and some other early nutrition pioneers. And there was a lot of focus at that time during the discovery of all the vitamins and minerals, the essential, you know, nutrients mm -hmm. that, that in trace amounts that we need. And that start, that was a big focus of medicine back then. But as mm -hmm. we became more um, pharmaceutical based, a lot of that just became nowhere near as important as it should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And the immune system is one of the things that will suffer when, you know, besides your reproductive function, mm -hmm. anything that's not absolutely essential to your day-to-day -day existence is the first thing to go. So if women are losing right. their hair, yeah. that's a mm -hmm. first sign of a nutritional deficiency, unless they yeah. just come, you know, out of pregnancy right. or had a huge stress because the body just doesn't have enough to do those extra things those nice to right. do things uh, yeah and getting pregnant is actually a nice to do it's not a necessary thing to stay alive yeah so it's a little lower on the totem pole than your your general health needs right yeah that makes sense and on that topic so i didn't put this on our outline ahead of time but one thing i wanted you to talk about is sodium because that was a really big eye-opener for me when i worked with you is i was always like going to the bathroom like all the time, but I, I was also super thirsty all the time too. And my urine was clear. So it was like, I think I'm really hydrated. Um, mm -hmm. and then you looked at my sodium and you were like, actually, I think that's a little low. Your blood sodium um, was on the low end of normal, right? Yeah. And so of course, you know, my doctor hadn't thought one thing normal. about it, Yeah, no big deal. but then once I started eating more salt, I was like, oh, I'm not as thirsty all the time. I'm not going to the bathroom as much. And I could tolerate the heat much better too. like working out in the summer. Like I was like, oh, I don't mind this as much. Um, so that was one thing, like, you know, I see a lot of women who maybe have like urinary, um, frequency or urgency. And of course I'm, you know, not trying to give them advice that's out of my scope, but oh, well, I think that's, that's, you know, that's, I'm sure that's within your scope as a physical yeah. therapist. I mean, I'll still hydration, ask, right. Yeah. And, and I'll ask them, I'm like, Hey, do you like, do you eat a lot of salt? Do you avoid it? You know, and like, of course, you know, you need to get your labs done, but sometimes I found that even, um, just adding like an electrolyte drink, like that's helped, um, some people that I work with too, who have that frequency. Oh yeah. That's, that's, that's key because your body cannot hold on to those fluids without that sodium and, and, and the potassium and mm -hmm. electrolyte. You know, we were just talking the other day when I was in the office, um, at your office, my husband, um, tore a slight tear in his calf muscle and he sweats like crazy. He's got the light, a little bit lighter skin and very blue eyes and blondish hair. And um, I think it's more of a, a Northern European thing versus I'm a little more Southern European, a um, little bit. And I said, you know what, you, you, you didn't drink enough today because I see what he's drinking when we're playing tennis and we're out there for yeah. three hours. We're playing doubles mostly, but we're pretty, we're pretty competitive and we'll be, you know, both of us will be very wet, but he's, and um you know, speaking of urinating too, that's another thing I was saying this to somebody yesterday, you know, I didn't have to urinate yesterday. I was playing three hours of pickleball and my clothes were drenched. And one of the guys that I was playing with went off to the, you know, the restroom 
And I was like, where are you going? You know, he said, oh, the bathroom. So I thought I was leaving. I said, oh, that's a good sign. <laughs> you know, Because if you're out exercising for four hours and you haven't urinated, that's a pretty bad sign, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it does happen. Uh, you're also in your moment, you're probably not, you know, as focused on your, your, right. your bladder, but, but so often um, we're either, we're underhydrated with fluids, but then we can actually then do more harm than good by just consuming just water. Mm-hmm. You know, as you know, you, you know, you're out in the, in the heat, you really shouldn't be drinking more than I'd say a liter of water before you switch to an electrolyte drink. That's, mm-hmm. that's my belief. Um, I'm not an athletic specialist, but I've done enough research on it for myself. And, you know, I see women a lot that are, oh, I'm drinking, you know, 12 glasses of water a day or whatever, a hundred and some ounces. I'm like, yeah, well, how much are you peeing? Oh, I have to pee every hour. I'm like, I mean, why do you want to pee every hour? Yeah, no, we definitely shouldn't be going. You yeah, know, that's what um, it's like. Are you like, I was your like, food? And do you really need that much water? Yeah. And that's what it was just so crazy because it's like I was, you know, kind of the way you explained it. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's like I was almost dehydrated because I was. I mean, I was drinking a lot, but then it was just like going through me. And now that I've like, you know, been more in tune with that, like I can tell like, oh, I haven't been eating enough salt lately. Like I'm really thirsty or, you know, I kind of switch back and forth between like eggs in the morning or oatmeal. So if I eat mm-hmm. oatmeal, I don't have as much, much salt, put salt, in, your put salt in my eggs. Yeah. It's funny. I, I know I should do that. I Sometimes I'll just, I'll just things. put it on my hand and like, yeah. Oh no, it. that's great too. It's, yeah. it's good. I keep salt. I keep salt in a little container in my tennis bag. Yeah. It really, you know, there's so many factors that determine how much sodium we need. It's not a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. There are people that are more salt sensitive. Um, but if you are an athletic woman and you're out there sweating, you're not only losing sodium, you're losing zinc possibly, you know, and losing some potassium. And you know, one of the things I just tell women sometimes I, I ask them, do you sweat much? And especially if you're not sweating, that's a really bad sign. I've had some ath- athletic women in the past. No, I hardly sweat. I'm like, well, that's because your body's trying to maintain it's so it's salt and mm-hmm. water. It's it's you need to you need to put that salt in, but taste your sweat. It's not water. Mm-hmm. It's basically tastes like seawater. Yeah. You know, and um actually, you know, because you're an uh I'm sure you work with a lot of serious athletes, but you know there's the salinity tests, right? For no, your sweat. Actually, uh-uh. There's um, do-it-yourself sweat salinity tests. That's the amount of salt in your sweat. I've thought about getting them. I, I just haven't done it. But I there's a guy down a, down my street that's a triathlete. And we were talking about that one day. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I test my test my sweat. I'm like, oh, really? I didn't know you could do that. Um, so you can do that. Because if your salinity hmm. and your sweat drops, that's a bad sign. Yeah. Hmm. So now we're both going to do that, right? <laughs> yeah, now I'm curious now. <laughs> yeah, you have to look it up. Because I looked it up briefly. Um, See, I'm not the person that does all this tracking of my body. I don't really like to wear those things. Um, I think physical activity is as much for your, as your mental health as it is for your physical health. Oh yeah. Yeah, I definitely agree. Um, all right, cool. Well, let's talk about PCOS a little bit more, um, because I think this is a pretty common diagnosis that people get. Um, and so can you just tell me kind of a little bit more about it and like what the symptoms are and then you know, you've already sort of touched on this a little bit, but kind of what kind of things are you having people change if they are having these symptoms? Okay. Well, I see a couple different types of women who've been diagnosed with PCOS. Okay. So we've got more than a couple. So we have really fit lean women, which we call lean PCOS, which is kind of, I think that's a very, very broad category. 
and then all the way to the obese women with PCOS, which are probably more true PCOS women than the lean women. But it's all about having, it's considered a, a condition where women make too much testosterone generally and other androgens. Although there's some debate on that um, because I do see a good number of patients that have, okay, one of these three characteristics, you have two of these three, sorry. You have irregular periods, you have cysts on your ovaries as, as usually discovered by ultrasound and they generally have to have 12, it's called a string of pearls or more. And then the third thing is signs or um, laboratory reports indicating you have high testosterone or DHEA or free testosterone. Or there's also androstenedione, mm -hmm. that's not as often checked. Also, you will also, and this is not diagnostic, but you'll see elevated luteinizing hormone, elevated anti-malarian hormone. Uh, many women have elevated fasting insulin, um, elevated glucose, even, and, and some women also have elevated stress hormones. But see, that's where you don't know if that's really PCOS or it's stress. Mm -hmm. Because some women, and I believe I'm one of these women, have what I call adrenal PCOS. And other people call it that too, um, where most of your androgens come from your adrenal glands. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I think this is because I know that I tend to be a little of a high stress person, um, gotten better in my old age, um, but that contributes to having excessive androgens, which by the way, you may have blood work done, a woman may have blood work done and it may not come up as high. Mm -hmm. Because especially testosterone, it pulses throughout the day. Mm. So you might not capture the peak. Right. But I saw a doctor years ago said to me, and, I, and this is true, I, I know this now anyway, but it doesn't even matter if your blood levels are normal. If you have signs of high testosterone, you've got high testosterone. Yeah. But that's not completely true either, because we know that Mediterranean women have more, you know, in Middle Eastern women have more hair growth. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it's, there's no, it's, it's a continuum, I guess is the best way to put it. Right. Yeah. But if you, if a woman comes into me and says, well, I've been diagnosed with PCOS and I just, okay, well, we're going to do a lower carb diet. We're going to make sure your stress is low. We're going to make sure you have enough protein. And by the way, you may know this, but you can eat too much protein too. Right. Yes. <laughs> um, you know, um, especially when you're pregnant, we want to win and certain types of protein are better when you're pregnant to balance each other. So that's, that's where the collagen comes in. Um, but just say, Hey, let's forget about that diagnosis. Even, even if you have high insulin levels, even if you have, um, super high testosterone, which is a very hard thing to lower by the way. And then sometimes it's just your genetics, you know, mm -hmm. and it's also in, in utero factors. So it's, it's so complex, you know, it's, mm -hmm. and also, you know, I always tell women, look, you know, some of the best female athletes has been shown that they've got higher testosterone than the average woman. And yeah, it totally makes sense, right? right? There's there's a wide range of um, female body types and athletic abilities. Mm -hmm. So I would say, look, you know, you may have higher testosterone, but that doesn't mean you're, you know, not fully a woman. And I mean, I listen, I have higher testosterone. I'm embracing it because it gives you a little more energy, helps yeah. the muscles be a little bit bigger, right? Not to mention helps your sex drive, what, you know, so, but when it gets too high, you know, then it starts presenting problems because then it can cause we know that that's also linked with the insulin levels going up in the body. So mm -hmm. 
so that's where women are are considering you know reducing carbs reducing dairy reducing gluten and all those things may or may not be appropriate for the person mm-hmm. that's been diagnosed with pcos mm-hmm. so what i try to do is find out what the most important factors are that are behind their pcos so for some mm-hmm. women they have extremely poor diets and they're obese and so the first thing we do is we just got to get them onto more natural real foods and and mm-hmm. of course get, get the micronutrients through uh appropriate vitamin as needed but um and then there's this the, all the way to the slender women that often have to eat more carbs mm-hmm. because if you're not eating enough carbs you can actually have elevated fasting blood sugar so mm-hmm. It's very, very hard for someone to do this on their own, no matter how much yeah. research they've done, because they haven't seen all the different types of presentations of PCOS right. that I have. And what I, you don't want to do is label yourself because, you know, we all do that. I mean, I labeled myself. So, and like, oh, I've got this testosterone that's probably high, you know, and it's like a curse, but you know, it's not a curse. It's just a variety of being a female. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's so true, especially, especially because I feel like that is a diagnosis that probably gets thrown around a lot by doctors. Like, you know, they have, you know, maybe two of those symptoms, but it's like, like you're saying that underlying cause could be really different. So if you're just Googling, you know, PCOS diet, you might be lucky and find the thing that works for you, but then it, it might not, not also work. And, and sometimes those diets are very hard to follow. It, it, and that's the other thing I try to only make the number of recommendations that I think are, are sustainable for a person. Yeah. I don't, you know, some women want to really lose weight quickly and I get it. And that's fine. Especially if they have a time clock on getting pregnant and they feel that they need to do, um, you know, IUI, IVF, they won't, doctors mm-hmm. won't do IVF unless your BMI is under 40. But, um, so, I mean, I respect that, but rapid weight loss is usually not sustainable and you can do it for a couple of months, but you, mm-hmm. you also are sending signals to your body that you're in a famine. Right. And the body's going to adjust accordingly. Eventually it's going to plateau to hold on to the fat that it does have it, you know, the whole thing with yeah. leptin and leptin resistance, you know, so the more we fool around with our bodies and try to do, you know, radical things too quickly, we could predispose ourselves to resistant weight loss, which is, a huge problem when women get over 40 or 50. Mm-hmm. It's really hard to lose weight if you've been on multiple malnourished diets mm-hmm. in your life. Yeah. And then one other thing you mentioned about that, you know, the diagnosis being just given to a lot of women. If you're not ovulating, you're going to get cis uh, immature follicles in your ovaries. So mm-hmm. right there, lack of a regular period and cysts in your ovaries, you got PCOS. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily. Why aren't you ovulating? Let's figure that out. Did your body right. not want to get pregnant? Well, why not? Yeah. You know, and that's yeah. probably the majority of women that I see that I say, mm, really don't think you have PCOS. In fact, I was working with a woman yesterday, you know, this is, this is a problem for some women, but she, she hadn't had a period like in a year and a half and she'd gotten her period after like three months and she was just so happy. Well, she sort of fell back into her old habits a little bit, but she still has her period because she's been mm-hmm supplementing with some nutrients that I thought were important. Um, and we could taper that off after a while, a little bit. Well, now she has terrible periods with terrible cramps and she got anemic, extremely anemic. And um, so these are not short-term things that we're talking about doing. This is, this is about caring for your physical body and your mental, you know, your mental health for the rest of your life. And 
you know, I only wish people would eat as well as they feed their dogs. I mean, I'm not saying dog food is perfect. But <laughs> if you read the back of a dog food label, you see yeah. all the stuff. If it's good dog food. Yeah. It's designed for that dog to live a long, healthy life. Yeah. And of course, we're not going to be dogs. I mean, you know, most of us like to have treats. I mean, I had some right. ice cream yesterday. I don't know what I'll have today. I'm going out um, tonight. But I have to be honest with you. If your listeners want to make one change right now, just stop eating fried foods. Yeah. Yeah. Just say no to fried foods because they are the most destructive food to the human body and not mm. just for reproduction. Yeah. For heart disease, for, for cancer, for diabetes, for hypertension, for early aging, for arthritis, you name it. They are the worst things you can eat. And unfortunately, it's really popular in this yeah. part of the country. Yeah. And um, I mean, they do taste good you know, like oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, they're good. If but. anybody wants to research that, I have a blog on my um, website, womenandfamilynutrition.com. It's about French fries. And there's mm -hmm. a bunch of links in there. Um, yeah. That I'll really have to look help you give you, um, and there's probably more that I could provide. I made that a few months ago, but I mean, if I had to have my last meal, I don't know, there'd be a few toss ups, but French fries might be on the plate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the salty fries, that is my favorite. Crispy, salty, we all love, you know. And yes. then the other thing we love, women love, is sugary things that are, you know, creamy or baked. And listen, you, you don't have to be a purist. Um, but a lot of times, having years of eating these foods, it takes, a few years to get these things out of your body. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you look at your body, every single cell that you can see, and obviously the ones you can't, is made from the food you eat. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And it's funny when women are pregnant, especially if they're coming into me and not having seen me before, and they like like a gestational diabetes, and they're eating certain foods. I said, oh, um, and would you feed that to your child? Are you going to plan on feeding that type of food to your baby when they're like a year old? Oh, oh, I wouldn't feed that to my baby. I'm like, really? And why are you eating it then? <laughs> no, but I'm not talking about the occasional French fry. Yeah. I'm talking about people who go to Chick-fil-A three days a week. Right. You know? Yeah. No, and sense. they love it and it's fast. Um, but I'm always saying, do you love it as much as you love, you know, because I love doing athletic activities and, and feeling energy and, and not going to the doctor um, like all my friends are with all sorts of problems. And not to say that I couldn't get sick. I could. Um, but I, you know, there's food is really, really a big part of how we enjoy life. Sorry, my phone, the phone's ringing. You're good. But um, there's so many foods that are actually delicious that aren't bad for you. Yeah, you know, that's probably, true. If you want to eat something crunchy and salty and fatty, have some toast with some butter on it. Yeah. You know, that's get true. some that really tastes good, good bread too. that you like. And yeah. um, have some toast and butter and some of the good artisanal breads they have around here, these bakeries. They're amazing. So just think of things different that you like. Maybe you're going to say, well, I don't like it as much. But people are like, you know what it is? When people think something's bad for you, like everybody thinks butter and bread is bad for you. Well, I'm not going to say it's great for you, but it's not. I don't think it's terrible for you either. They, It's almost like you want to do the worst thing. If you're going to do something bad, you might as well do the worst thing, right? You know, mm -hmm. like let's eat French fries because bread and butter is probably just as bad. But it's not. <laughs> yeah. Because our ancestors could churn butter from their cows and could bake bread from their wheat. Right. We can't make industrial seed oils, which are basically soybean, sunflower, um, cottonseed, soy, canola. We can't really make, we can't make those without a factory. 
-hmm. And when they put them in a fryer, changes the chemical composition and makes them full of reactive oxygen species, which by the way, fats are the only thing that we eat that go directly into our cell membranes Mm. intact. I didn't know that. Yeah. Well, well, you've heard of essential fats, right? Yeah. Yeah. So those, those little, you know, those little fatty acids that come off the triglycerides, they're called essential because we actually use them as they are. We need them. Mm -hmm. We need DHA and um, arachidonic acid in our cell membranes to make them function properly. But we will take in other lipids too, other fats from our food. We'll burn some of them. We'll store some of them in our adipose tissue, but a lot of them go into our cell membranes and Mm -hmm. change the ability of our cells to hear the the hormonal messengers and things Mm -hmm. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's good to know. I think, I think knowing maybe too, like why it's bad may also help people too, you know, cause it's one thing to know, like, oh, I shouldn't really eat this all the time, but it's like, when you don't understand what it's actually doing to your body, you know, right. how it's going to change knowledge, things, knowledge you know. is power. And it's not, you know, people think I said, I don't care about the calories. The calories are one thing that's, you know, I, you know, I'm not talking about the calories. I'm talking about the chemistry of your body being changed. Mm-hmm. And, and there's more and more and more people speaking out on this problem. And it really became a problem in the early 80s when the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture, put out the dietary guidelines and said avoid saturated fats and cholesterol. That started the Mm -hmm. whole thing. Mm -hmm. And that was a bonanza for companies like Archer Daniels Midland, who um, produces products that that, um, like soybeans and also the companies that provide fertilizers and pesticides for that industry that became a huge way of marketing products on a huge factory farm scale. And so, whereas we used to maybe have smaller farmers and you'd get it, and this is a ways ago, but you know, you'd get a cow and you butcher the cow. And yes, I know there's a lot of people that don't want to kill animals, but, but the animals were raised in a humane way and they should be killed in a humane way. And, you know, at this point we are, most of us are better off as omnivores, mm-hmm. but we take that animals when on, grass, which incidentally grass is an amazing green growing grass is an amazing, amazing thing for animals and to be exposed to pasture because to have have the opportunity, because so many of those nutrients in those rapidly growing plants can be converted, bioconverted to even a more usable form for our bodies. Hmm. So egg yolks, for example, have really high bioavailable vitamin K2 lutein and zeaxanthin that comes Mm -hmm. directly from that green growing grass. If the if the eggs are nice and orange or mm. yellow orange. So the more you learn, and you were right, the yeah. more you understand the reason, the more you say, you know what, I'm not going to allow that to happen to my body. And a lot of times I'll tell people, you know what, this is exactly what the food industry and the medical community want. They mm-hmm. want you to eat this food, get sick, and then they have drugs for you. Right. Yeah. Or surgery or whatever. And they don't really want you to be healthy. I hate to tell you this, but that's not how hospitals and medical systems make money. Yeah. You know, it's true. They don't make money from well people. Now we make money from making people well, but I, I'm, that's the best money anybody could spend. Oh yeah. No, I agree. I mean, that's what we tell patients. We're like, look, you can, you can invest now. And like, I mean, of course we can't say we're going to hundred percent prevent everything, but this is way cheaper than surgery. This is less time invested, less money, less, less pain, you less know, pain, that's a big one pain. So, you know, you've worked with a lot of people. I'm sure that have a lot of pain and that's, a, that's one of the hardest things that 
I've seen in my practice when someone comes in with pain and they can't exercise and Mm -hmm. it it starts becoming a a depression thing. And then they use food as their, you know, entertainment. And, you know, I never blame anybody like that because there's no blame here. It's just, if you can look objectively what you want from your life and decide that you're going to make short-term sacrifices to get yourself started because usually it's a big change. Mm -hmm. And then eventually what I see in most women, they don't want to go back. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I agree. Um, All right. Last thing I just want to quickly touch on. I want to make sure I'm respectful of your time. Um, It's just the protein. Cause I think this is the other thing you kind of already mentioned, right? Like we can't eat too much protein. Um, And especially if someone is super active, I think that's, you know, what the fitness industry says is you you need to eat a lot of protein. Um, so what, how much do you really recommend for someone, um, who is pretty active, maybe lifting weights and then someone who's just, um, you know, active, but maybe not doing as much weight training. Yeah. Well, I, I generally start with somewhere around one to one and a half grams per kilogram body weight. So just to translate that, um, if you weigh 150 pounds, and this we're talking about a woman because a pretty muscular man at that weight would be um, need more protein. Mm-hmm. It would be about 80 to 100 grams, mm-hmm. and that would be spread preferably over three meals at minimum of two. Mm-hmm. Um, be, and you, you can't really utilize more than let's say 30, 40 grams of protein. You can't use the amino acids as protein because your body can't utilize it that quickly. I mean, if you're lifting, probably you could, if you're heavy lifting, yes. And that would be a different situation where you probably go up to two grams, mm-hmm. which bring you up probably 150 grams minimum. And it all depends on the size and, and the, and the um, mm-hmm. body composition of the person. But if you eat more protein than you need, the one thing that's really important to consider is the type of amino acids that you're taking in. Whereas we know all about the, you know, the need for amino acids and there's like, there's eight essential and some conditionally essential amino acids. But um, so animal proteins, all of them, even even things like dairy protein has all the essential amino acids because that has to sustain a living thing. And by the way, if you're looking for a fertility food, I should have said this before, think eggs because they're pastured eggs because that's basically mm-hmm. what they are, you know, something fertile. Um, not necessarily fertile, but ready to be a, ready to be a living right. thing. Um, but so if you're taking in 30 grams per meal, maybe, maybe a little more, you're going to have a piece of protein on your plate. The size of your palm are around four ounces. Mm-hmm. With that said, it doesn't have to all be meat. Um, or sometimes I, well, I, I'm a big push, pusher of cheese. That sounds funny, but I think adding cheese to food really ups the protein and at the same time gives you calcium and, and fat. And it's all mm-hmm. like great to have all that stuff together. Um, so I usually tell women to keep their protein somewhere around three ounces at minimum. And then certainly you can add some cheese and I do like legumes, but I can't eat a lot because of my GI tract doesn't really handle a lot of fiber like that, but you can throw in some high protein carbs and that will help. But the thing mm-hmm. is to get those amino acids from the animal protein, usually I recommend twice a day minimum especially for fertility, just to make sure that we're not missing any nutrients that also go along with those amino acids, such as zinc. Hmm. So, you know, we're a lot of women are considering doing the plant-based meats. I have to tell you, they may have protein in them, but they do not have the micronutrients that Hmm. grass-fed beef or even just regular beef have. 
for yeah. example. So be careful thinking they're equivalent. Um, mm. There's also some other things in beef like carnitine and creatine where those things are very helpful and they are lower in vegetarians or vegans than in omnivores. Would that be a problem for a young person? Probably not as much as for an older person because we get mm. less uh, able, our bodies for some reason, we just don't make things because carnitine and creatine are things that made in the body and we just make less of them as we get older. So um, I generally myself start the day with three eggs and sometimes I'll have a piece of cheese with it. If I do not have some dairy or sometimes yogurt or keeper, mm -hmm. I will generally take a 250 milligram calcium supplement or something mm -hmm. that has that because at my age, I do not have osteopenia. I do not have osteoporosis, but it is a big problem. I think half of women yeah. get it. And I'm not a very large woman. So I was told when I was younger that you have smaller, you know, bones, smaller, you know, body mass, you're going to be more prone to that. So it's been something that's been on my mind for a while. Um, I've had a few scans and they've been thankfully all good. Mm -hmm. um, but there's so many nutrients involved in bone, dense, in bone right. density. Anyway, I'm just talking about calcium because a lot of women are now going dairy free. Mm -hmm. And that's another thing I have an article on my website about, because it's a very common thing to consider dairy is not really nutritious. And, you know, there's debates on it and I understand why. And, um, we can talk about different forms of dairy, but obviously it's not right now. And then the other thing about animal proteins is we are not eating them the way our ancestors did. Mm -hmm. We, well, for example, now people are eating egg whites instead of whole eggs. Well, 90% of the vitamins are in the yolk and right. the, the all essential choline. So, and anyway, there's as much protein in the yolk as there is in the white and cholesterol is a non-issue in the diet anyway for 99% of people. So, you know, it's, it's, it's silly that people are still doing that, but here and there they do. I think people have gotten the um, message, but mm -hmm. There is, um, in meat, there's a lot of sulfur-containing amino acids, which are very, very good. But they, if you eat more, too much lean meat, you can actually deplete some fat-soluble vitamins. And on top of that, you're not getting a balance of amino acids. You'll get a lot of methionine and some other uh, sulfur-containing amino acids, but you won't get much glycine. Hmm. And glycine is a, a conditionally essential amino acid. Our body can make it, but we do better when we consume it. And the best dietary source of glycine is collagen. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a book on collagen. Um, I, I actually didn't appreciate the importance of collagen fully until I wrote the book. And now I'm mm -hmm. like a person that's always having collagen in some way, shape or form. And honestly, my knees don't hurt anymore at all. And my hair grows wow. like crazy. Yeah. I think my skin is better. Um, and my patients tell me the same. And I, you know, there's a lot of people that think this is some sort of a trend, but my book will explain why the human diet has always had good sources of collagen in it because mm -hmm. ancestral populations did not just eat the, the filet mignon or the steak. They ate right. part of the animal. They could not yeah. afford. Yeah. And, and they also, they respected the animal more than that. You know, nowadays we feed a lot of that stuff to um, pets, right. You know, and we throw the organ meats away. We don't eat the skin. We don't eat off the bones. We don't eat the connective tissue unless we know the difference. Yeah. And, and certainly I still eat chicken breast in certain dishes, but um, eating the whole animal is, you know, we call nose to tail eating and it's really one of the more important trends out there for ancestral nutrition. Yeah, I know. You told me to eat chicken skin. Is that, is glycine in? Yes. In the skin, the skin yeah. and, and bones so. of animals and around the connective tissue, around the bones. 
yeah, yeah. so chicken skin especially if it's organic chicken salmon skin especially wild caught those are great sources of collagen without but you know i i think every day we should have collagen because every day is an opportunity to build our you know rebuild our joints and there are some re there is research there's a couple studies showing that using gelatin before physical activity i forgot what the markers of joint repair or joint health they but it showed that that actually with like 50 milligrams of vitamin C helped with the collagen formation in the joints. And that is the research was done by what was his name? I can't remember. But it's, you know, a lot of a lot of people are now realizing that we need to balance our um, sources of protein. And there are some longevity studies in animals that show that when we have a less methionine and more glycine, we do better longevity wise. Yeah, cool. Yeah, awesome. that's a lot, a lot of good information. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Ancestral nutrition is, is they didn't know, you know, the names of the vitamins. They didn't even know that they figured this all out on their own. And so if you read the work of Weston A. Price, he, he wrote a book called Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, or you read the Weston A. Price's website, the parts on nutrition. I kind of avoid the virus issue because they're, they're kind of over the top about that right now. But um you'll start seeing that, wow, this makes a lot of sense, you mm -hmm. know, and, you know, it's, it's life-changing. And then you just never know, you might surprise yourself. Like I never mm -hmm. thought that I could be a really good athlete. And I'm not saying I'm, you know, I'm not going out there, you know, but it's all about belief. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I a hundred percent agree with that. If you believe you can be healthier, you put your mind to it, you can do it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, cool. Well, Pam, thank you so much again. Um, I will link your website in the show notes. Um, and I will, um, if you have those blogs too, you can send them to me and I can okay. link them in the show notes as well. In case anyone listening wants to get in touch with you. Mm -hmm. Um, but as I said, thank you so much again for, providing um, us with so much information. I know you really changed the way I look at food and um, opened my eyes to a lot of things. So hopefully some people listening will feel the same. I hope so. It's all about passing it on because we, we need as women to stand together or as just humans to stand, to stand together and go back to what our ancestors knew intuitively instead of trying to um, reinvent the wheel with nutrition because we're, we're pretty much the same genetics as we used to be. Yeah, definitely. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you guys for listening. Um, and as I said, Pam's information will be in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening to the functional pelvic health podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode.